Turning you back to that passage that we read just a little earlier on, Exodus chapter 13, we'll be actually going back into chapter 12 a piece as well. But we have entitled a message this morning, A New Journey. A New Journey. Let's just unite our hearts together in a word of prayer as we come to the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we thank thee again for the opportunity just to sing our praises unto thee. And O oh God, we pray that I might accept of our humble thanks for all that the Lord had done for us. We never will cease to praise him. And Lord, we realize, Lord, in a little while we're going home. Oh God, we do not sing of the physical. But Lord, we recognize we're traversing through this old world. And it's just a little span. And for God's people soon, we'll be at home with the Lord. O oh God, teach us, teach us, we pray this morning. Give us a teachable spirit, give us help in the pulpit, give help also in the pew. And Lord, be glorified. Give us, Lord, those words that must and shall prevail, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are various types of journeys that are undertaken every day of every week. The one that has taken up our nation. And its attention is that of our late Queen Elizabeth II from where she passed away at Balmoral into God's eternity. To Edinburgh, capital Scotland, then to be brought down to the very capital of the nation into London itself to lie in state before her funeral service. That journey of her coffin will finally be laid at rest at Windsor. And all the way, of course, it has been marked by large crowds seeking to pay their respects and to get a glimpse of what is the last earthly journey of the remains of one who is greatly beloved. A journey, men and women, that reminds us all that each one of us will have to take one day for in the midst of life, there's death. This morning, we embark upon a different journey. Although it has its similarities. Moses was to gather Israel together as tragedy and turmoil reigned among the Egyptians with the death of their firstborn. But Israel as a nation had known God sparing their firstborn and redeeming them by the blood of the slain lamb. And what anticipation that must have caused among the Israelites. Because God had spared their firstborn, then, of course, that meant there was hope for the future. And now their deliverance was about to be completed. As it would be brought out of Egypt, out of their affliction and out of their oppression, what was death to the Egyptians was life for the Israelites. What was defeat for Pharaoh was victory and honor for Moses and for the people of God. And such a contrast, you know, also exists between the saved and the unconverted at death. For one, there's a time of rejoicing. It's leaving this whole world behind and it's entering immediately into the presence of the Lord. For others, the unconverted, the unsaved, there's a time of entering into great horror. Because it's a lost eternity. Israel, they were to know deliverance. 
They had the prospect of going on this journey that would bring them to a new land. And you know, that's the divine order. It's only when we are in Christ, without condemnation, through redemption by the blood of the Lamb, that we begin then to walk in the Spirit. They had been redeemed in the night of the Passover. Now we're about to embark on their walking, their journey. And once we're saved, we're on a journey in a different direction to that which we were previously upon. The believer is on the way to heaven. We're on our way home to that new land. That means we're strangers and we're pilgrims here on this earth. But meanwhile, here we are exhorted to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Savior. We're exhorted to live by faith. We're exhorted in the Word of God to walk by faith, not by sight. And it is our purpose this morning to go with Israel as they commence this new journey. It will mean dealing with verses in chapter 12, as I've already said to you. But as they went forward, they were to remember what God had done for them. I want you to come with me. I want you to notice, first of all, here the multitude. That Israel, we're embarking on this journey in the first place, is something that takes us back to what God said to Abraham, to when God met with Abraham and made that covenant. That this multitude were to leave Egypt was something that was promised by God. And now that it was happening, is token to his faithfulness. Let me turn you back to that. Genesis 15. Come back to Genesis 15, please, where the Lord meets with Abraham. You read with me the words of verse 13 and 14. And it says, And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger. Now, remember, he hasn't any offspring at this stage. But the Lord promises that he's going to be the father of a great multitude. And he says, Thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. The length of years had not diminished the mind of God where his promise was concerned. He said, No of a surety. Here's something sure. There were no ifs, there were no maybes. God had decreed it would come to pass. And so he now made good his word. Exodus 12 verse 40 says this, Now the sore journeying of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Is not what God had promised to Abram? That your seed, they will be in that land and there'll be a stranger there. They will serve them. They will afflict them for those number of years. But know of a surety I will deliver them. God's promise was certain. Indeed it is said to occur as we read there in verse 41 of Exodus 12 on the selfsame day. What's that mean? That means the exact moment in which God had promised it would happen. It was the exact same day. Even though it may have looked like the circumstances weren't favorable, as so often is it is the case with ourselves, 
It could have been argued that the situation in Egypt didn't lend itself to be the promise uh, having it fulfilled. It looked like Israel were not going to be set free. Pharaoh, of course, had stubbornly refused to obey the command of the Lord. He, He had come through nine plagues and still Israel were there. The Israelites were still his nation there. But men and women, God never fails to keep his promises. His word is certain. You can depend upon it. That is, even in the face of those adverse circumstances. It is even in the face of those skeptics who would seek to undermine God's word by pointing out what they think are inconsistencies. Like the one in the verses we've just read. Didn't we read in Genesis 15 about the 400 years? And now Exodus chapter 12 indicates to us there's 430 years of the sojourn of the Israelites. And the skeptic jumps forward and says, Ah, the scriptures are inconsistent. No, they're not. You see, dear people, the answer is quite simple. In places of scripture, there's a rounding off of numbers instead of giving an exact date. In our passage, the number is not rounded off. It is the exact date, as we have already indicated to you with the words, this self-same day, the very day that God said they were coming out of Egypt. But Abram wouldn't need an exact day. He wouldn't be there. A rounded off number would be sufficient, and that's why he's given the time scale by the Lord God after 400 years. There's no inconsistency. I believe a little note about the number of the multitude ought to be considered also before we go any further. You look at verse 37 of Exodus chapter 12. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children. There's a number that's rounded off as well. There's an approximate number there of about 600,000 men. The actual number when you consider women and children is estimated conservatively to be about 3 million. God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 2 that he would make him a great nation. And now that great nation, 430 years after the promise was made, were on the move out of Egypt. There were 430 years behind the promise and there were approximately 3 million behind Moses. And that makes this exodus a miracle in terms of their daily care, of their daily provision, of the daily control that would have been required. They were fed, they were clothed, they were provided for their every need. I always loved the wee verse, even the soles of their feet didn't wear away through the 40 years of the wilderness. That's a miracle. They were met and provided with their every need and they were controlled miraculously even in the most difficult times by God. I want you to consider this multitude was purchased by God. There's an interesting little detail there in verse 41. It says, And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, underline it, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Passover night was when the blood was shed. The lamb was slain. Israel were redeemed. 
It was then that their deliverance became a reality and they begin this new journey. The next morning, Israel are on the move as a free people. And it describes them in verse 41 as the hosts of the Lord. They went out from the land of Egypt. It doesn't say the hosts of Israel. You come across that in other places. It's the hosts of the Lord. Because they were purchased. They're a purchased people. And they're purchased by blood. And dear child of God, as God lays claim to his own upon delivering us from the bondage of sin, then justly he demands our devotion to him. A.W. Pink, one of the commentators, said this, personal devotedness is the first thing which God has a right to look for from his blood-bought people. Personal devotedness. You'll know that following the doctrinal chapters in the book of Romans, as often the case in the letters of Paul, of course, the doctrine comes first, and then comes the practical. Well, after the doctrinal chapters of Romans, the first exhortation is found in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And young people uh, heard a little about that in their, during their devotions during the weekend. It's really the least that we can do. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's personal devotedness. Rendering our bodies as a living sacrifice unto the one who loved us. We are those who are set apart unto God. And it ought to be shown by our personal holiness in life. There's something else about this multitude. There's a prohibition amongst them. What I mean by that is, look at verse 43. The Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. What follows, men and women, is there are three classes of people here. And they're prohibited from partaking of the Passover. The stranger. The feast was for Israel alone, those who had sheltered under the blood. It was only the family of faith who had participated in God's deliverance, and so they alone could commemorate it. In like manner, we don't welcome the unsaved around the Lord's table, because the unsaved as yet haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They can't commemorate the Lord's death. They can't remember it. They can't rejoice in the work of Christ's redemption. And so it's only for the family of God. It's only for God's people. Secondly, there's a hired servant prohibited as well. Look at verse 45. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. The hired servant was an outsider. He worked for payment. But there's no room, no place for such a principle within the work of God's redemption. You see, men and women, the work has already been done. And it was done at Calvary. Romans chapter 4 verse 5 says this, But to him that worketh not, but believeth in him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Good works don't save us. 
The work has been done already at the cross. And that's why a hired servant could not participate of the Passover feast. Thirdly, the uncircumcised, verse 48, they were also prohibited. When a stranger shall sojourn with thee and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his meals be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. It's a sign of the covenant. And only those who belong to the covenant grace can feed upon Christ. The exceptions were for those strangers and for those servants who had been circumcised, as you'll read in verse 44. They could partake. They were part of the family. Does it not give us a, a foreshadowing of that truth that the gospel wasn't only for the Jew? But it would also reach to the Gentile nations. And it's a great truth that the grace of God would also reach them and which is focused upon in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. It simply says this, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And Paul's writing to these, they're now saved. They're now the people of God. But he says there was a time, don't forget it, that you weren't part of the family of God. You weren't part of the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers. I love it. The next verse, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometime were afar off, had been made nigh by the blood of Christ. Verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. That word household is family. You're now part of the family of God. And that means as God has promised. You just think of this. There will be in heaven a great multitude of which no man can number. It's innumerable as far as man is concerned. Man can't put an exact figure on it. God only can do that. But the question I asked you is, are you sure you're part of that number of God's redeemed and not one who will be prohibited from entering heaven because you rejected the precious Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His redeeming work on the cross of Calvary? Are you sure you're part of the family? There is a multitude here. There's also the manner. Because having looked at those who were to start this journey, I believe it's important to consider the manner in which they did come out of Egypt. You just come with me and see that they didn't come out weak. Now, I'm going to bring you over to the Psalms to uh, underline this to you. The Psalmist brings it out in Psalm 105. Psalm 105, verse 37 he brings it out in some wonderful words. He's speaking about this time that we're relating to in Exodus 12 and 13. And it says in verse 37 of 105 Psalm, He brought them forth also with silver and gold. There was not one feeble person among their tribes. Not a powerful statement. We're conservatively thinking there's three million here. 
And as Samus says, under the guidance and direction of the Holy Ghost, there was not one feeble person among their tribes. There wasn't one feeble. How could such a statement be made? Because they'd just finished feeding on the lamb in their houses. And they were going on the strength of it. They were feeding and just fed upon the lamb. And I brought that out in a previous message. It wasn't only the killing of the lamb and the applying of its blood. There was a feasting upon the lamb. And the spiritual application is obvious. It's when we feed upon the living word of God. Which of course from Genesis to Revelation is of the lamb of God. That we will never be weak spiritually. They that do know their God shall be strong. The word strengthens us against temptation. For this book will keep us from sin. Or sin will keep you from this book. It will enable you to be strong in service for the Lord. It will enable you to live victoriously for Him. The weak condition of many in the Lord's army today is because they're not found feasting on the fresh manna, on the fresh bread from heaven. They have a lean diet when it comes to their souls. And so they're weak. And maybe only a few crumbs of whatever church they attend doesn't help matters either. You see, men and women of Israel came out strong. They weren't weak. I'll tell you something else. They didn't come out disorganized. I don't want you to have some picture in your mind's eye of suddenly this mob of Israel coming out of Egypt. Every shape and every way. That's not, that's not the picture you need to get in your head. There's no state of confusion here or of chaos. How could they come out in such a manner seeing that the Lord was the one that brought them out? Verse 51 of Exodus 12. It came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. The Lord was bringing them out. And so they couldn't have come out disorganized because there's no confusion with God. And I'm going to show it to you. Special attention ought to be noted by that word armies. It's a Hebrew word that means a host, body of men, marshaled, set in array, where everyone is appointed to his proper station and duty and is obliged to attend upon it. That's the picture. You, you see a, a, an army going to battle. They're not disorganized. They're not coming out of every shape. They're marshaled. There's order. Turn over to chapter 13. and the words of verse 18, you have another word. But God led the people out about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. Take your pen, underline it. Harnessed. If you have a good marginal Bible, look at the margin. The alternative translation is this, by five in a rank. Our translators have put an alternative in the margin. If you don't get to the idea of what it means to be harnessed, there it is, five in a rank. 
You see, men and women, they came out in a regimented manner. And that was something that just didn't happen overnight. But rather, Moses through this time must have been organizing them. In their tribes, in their ranks by five. It's something that ought to be seen in the church fellowship to this day. We need to be organized. For the opposite of that is chaos. And anything goes. We don't come to a meeting house and we don't sit and wait for someone to speak up and then someone to get up and contradict what he has just said. That happens in other places. That happens in this land. There's order. There's the hymns sung and there's prayer offered and the scriptures read. There's order. You see, Paul exhorted the church at Corinth, let all things be done decently and in order. And dear people, what is true of the church life has also to be true of our individual lives. You know, we don't do well when our day isn't organized. We don't really get on well as human beings When that happens, we'll never accomplish much. If my day isn't organized, I'm not going to get messages prepared. I'm not going to get visits done. I'm not going to be able to do other things as well. And the same applies to yourself. And men and women, that's why it is needful to have that daily time with God. Whenever it is in the day, you have your daily time with the Lord before his word, and before him in prayer. The life then will be lived in accordance to God's will. It'll be a life that has order in it. You come to the New Testament. I want you to see the very same thought, even in the public ministry of the Savior. Mark chapter 6, verse 39. It's a familiar enough passage. The young people will understand. The children will have heard it. In their Sunday school, it's about the parable of the feeding of the great multitudes. And of course, the fishes and the loaves are brought to the Lord. Verse 39, the Lord says, and it says, And he he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. When the Lord fed the multitude, there was a divine orderliness. Their companies, we're told, meant that they were able to sit down by ranks of hundreds and fifties. They could be fed in that manner. And by virtue of Israel coming out of Egypt in ranks of five, does that not, does that not express to you the grace of God? Five in the scripture is often spoken in relation to God's grace or God's favor. And dear friend, if you're in the ranks of God's redeemed and you're marching to glory, you're marching to heaven today, it's only by the grace of God in salvation. It's not through anything of yourself. Something else about their manner, they weren't coming out poor. They weren't leaving empty. As God had promised to Abram all those years previous at the burning bush, or Moses at the burning bush, they instead were loaded. They were coming out with great substance. Go back again to that psalm that I read, Psalm 105, verse 37. Let me read it to you one more time. 
It says there, he brought them forth also with silver and gold. They had been in poverty because of their slavery, but God brought them out from poverty to great wealth as they were instructed to ask of the Egyptians the gold, the silver, and the raiment. And in very short space of time, the Lord had changed around their circumstances to now being unrecognizable. They didn't come out weak. They didn't come out disorganized. And they didn't come out poor. And you know, it's a glorious picture of what the Lord does for the sinner who comes to repentance and faith. The sinner is a spiritual pauper. The sinner is nothing. But in salvation, they are enriched immeasurably and that instantly. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and the words of verse 9 brings it out. For it says, For ye know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And just how wealthy the child of God is, is emphasized by Paul when he speaks of us being joint heirs with Christ. You just think of that. Joint heirs with the King of Kings. None of us are joint heirs of the British throne today. But many of you are joint heirs with the throne of heaven. It's a wealth that will never be lost. Inflation will never devalue it. Child of God, you don't need to envy the wealthy so-called of this world for they're poor in comparison to what the lowliest saint has. I trust that we remember this is the manner in which we're traveling to that better land called heaven. Not one of us should be weak, disorganized, and we're certainly not poor. There's just a final truth that I want to show you from this passage before we close on it. That is the memorials. For as they commenced the journey that would bring them out of Egypt on to Canaan, there were some things they weren't to forget. And so we might term them as memorials. The obvious one, there's the Passover. Chapter 13, verse 3. And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which ye come out from Egypt out of the house of bondage. For by the strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. They weren't to forget what happened that day. It's a day of their deliverance. This was to be a special feast unto them. You look back at verse 43 of chapter 12. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. It's described, it's called the ordinance of the Passover. The Lord has left his church two ordinances. One is to remember the Lord's death. Second, one is baptism. You'll see that it was to be observed. That is, I'm talking about the Passover now. It is to be observed, verse 10 of chapter 13, from year to year. Thou shalt therefore keep the ordinance in a season from year to year. Everything in the ordinance was to remind Israel of the details of their deliverance. And it would foreshadow the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would die in Calvary's cross. 
I think we've spent enough time in chapter 12. I think by memory I've maybe preached three or four messages on that one chapter because it's full of the foreshadowing of Christ, the Lamb, the blood that was shed, the Passover feasted upon, the, the protection given by the blood. Every detail is a foreshadowing of the Savior. And yet here's the thing, ironically, when the Passover was been held in the New Testament in Jerusalem, it seemed only to be a fair show in the flesh. Because it was during that time that they took the Christ of God and they crucified the Lord of glory in the midst of this occasion. And here's the point. The Savior was a type of the Lamb. But the Jews missed it. They missed it. You see, they were taken up with the outward aspects of the ordinance. Like so many today that go through the motions of some religious exercise and faithfully they be in a house of God, but they don't see Christ. They never apply the message to their own hearts, we might say, having a form of godliness, but denying the, the power thereof. And the apostle says, from such turn away. Men and women, I, want, I desire that my congregation see Christ every meeting we, take, we have in this house. That they don't see a preacher or a denomination or some other set of rules, but they see Christ. And you pray that the Lord might prevent you from just going through the motions. Because, you know, we can get into a wee rut like that. I've spoke about order in our services. And we can get into role we're singing the first hymn and then prayer and then and we can just get into a rut and we're here for an hour or so and then we're out and we have missed Christ and that's what happened with the Jews they were to keep it from year to year but they missed Christ there's another memorial look at verse 1 and 2 of the chapter 13 the Lord spake unto Moses saying sanctify unto me all the firstborn whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel both of man and of beast it is mine. They were to remember the firstborn were owned by God. They've been bought with a price not of silver or gold, but the blood of the Lamb. Look again at those words at the end of verse 2. It is mine. God in spirit in the firstborn lays, lays claim to them as his own. He protected them when the death angel was passing over. And now he justifiably lays claim to what are his. Moses, tell the people. Firstborn of man and beast are mine. A redeemed people become the property of the Redeemer. And isn't that what is recorded for the people of God? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 19, let it sink into your heart. Paul's writing to the believers, he says, What? Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own. For we are bought with a price. Therefore, on account of that, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We've been dealing a wee bit with that uh, over this past number of weeks in the prayer meeting on Thursday night. These bodies being the temples of the Holy Ghost. What that means, what that looks like. We're not our own. I am His. 
He is mine. Don't we sing it? I wonder, believer, are we mindful of this principle? And therefore, we show it by our attendance at God's house. We show it by our giving to the Lord's work. We show it by our service for Christ. We show it by our dedication to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Owned of God, if we're redeemed. The last thing they weren't to forget were the bones. You say, what? Bones. Verse 19. Chapter 13, 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. The last chapter, that verse really brings us back to the last chapter of Genesis. I want you to come with me. Just in closing, chapter 50 of Genesis, and it records the counsel that Joseph had left regarding his bones. Chapter 50, verse 24. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. Joseph publicly was declaring his faith in God. He was firmly persuaded in his heart what God had promised. I don't need to spend time over the background. The famine was there. The family had come down and his old father had seen him. Now 17 years later after he was deceived into thinking he had died. And God spared him another 17 years now come the time where he was dying. And Joseph still believes God. God will give you that land that he promised unto Abram, unto, Jacob, unto Isaac and Jacob. Twice over he states it. God shall surely visit you. In those two verses. He had no doubt about it. It was emphatic as was the faith of Joseph. You will consider that the promise was for the future. Joseph told them to take his bones with them. He didn't say, take my body. Because you see, there's going to be a great expanse of time. It'll be 430 years to be exact. From the time of Abraham's promise to when they would come out. But nevertheless, it didn't diminish his faith in God. And neither should it with us when the promise of the Lord doesn't come to pass immediately or in the time in which it should, as you think or I think. Men and women, they hold upon that promise still. Indeed, if I can make reference to Hebrews chapter 11 and 22, it tells us that the commandment that Joseph gave to take his bones out was by faith. Simply says this, By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. And that order for his brethren to carry up his bones was in itself a glorious prospect for his brethren. The Israelites may have over the years have saw the coffin of Joseph, but it would have encouraged them to know that one day they would be leaving 
It was a proper, it put things into a proper perspective on them being in Egypt. There was a better land for them. This one wasn't their permanent home. They were merely passing through. For Joseph, whose trust was in God, said that he would surely visit them. And now it is recorded that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. The promise has come to pass. And men and women, I just close with this thought. When we look upon the coffin of a saint of the Lord, then the same truth comes home to us. This world is not our home. We're passing through. There's a better land. It's the heavenly Canaan. It's that journey that every child of God is on. Then don't forget to set your affections on things above, not on the things of the earth. Israel, as they looked at that coffin of Joseph, they could be comforted and encouraged to know that God would visit them and they'd be brought out of that land. Because Joseph said, you're bringing my bones with you. I pray that our gaze and our eyes in these days will be upon that which is eternal. That which will never rust away. That inheritance which is reserved for us in heaven. And is purchased through Christ, the Lamb of God. A new journey. The Lord bless his word to our hearts this morning. Or his own name said.